Okay. Uh, Deso, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Awesome. Let's start with a question that I think uh, is on everyone's mind, which is the fragility of the US dollar. Mm. You've spoken a lot about how you believe there is a crisis at hand that could lead to, um, in your words, a hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. So walk me through uh, your reasoning there. Why is the US dollar at risk? Well, the simple answer for that question is there's too much debt. And since we live in a system that uh, says money is debt and debt is money, because money is lent into existence by the Federal Reserve to the US government, uh, debt needs to be repaid. And that's the problem. There is so much debt that it mathematically cannot be repaid. There's only one exit to that, and that is devaluing the debt. That can only be done by just printing more money. Except, obviously, that's never that's creating more debt by itself, so it's never going to work. Eventually, after hyperinflation, we get hyperdeflation when the system resets and debt as money disappears or it gets reset to a more acceptable level. But until that time happens, they will try to kick the can down the road as long as it is, which means more money printing, which means more inflation. Okay, when you say uh, money is debt, so uh, th this is kind of a common um, theory about money, that all money comes from debt. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a great uh no, it's no theory. It's real. It's, it's actually the way money is created. There's two ways uh, money is created in a fiat uh, reserve system, like the US dollar. Uh, one is the Federal Reserve uh, lends money into existence. So um, the government of the US lends from the Federal Reserve, which accounts the, uh, the government at the uh, Federal Reserve. And that's how... Basically, money gets pushed into the economy. The government spends it first, and then it circulates. But the other way money is made is by uh, lending from the private banks. So uh, banks have the ability to create new money by leveraging up existing money. So there's a principal and there's a loan. So if you deposit 100 bucks into an American bank, you're not actually depositing money in a bank not the way you imagine it. You are giving a loan to that bank, which is then accrediting you a credit to your account. That is the hundred bucks you see when you log into your bank account or whatever. Meanwhile, the bank is allowed to leverage that up 10 times and write a loan for a thousand bucks. Now, as we all know, loans carry risk, which is expressed in the interest rate on that loan. So uh, if, you, if the money is very likely to come back because it's a very credit-worthy person it's lent to, it's AAA rated or whatever, and it might carry like a 1% interest rate. Or maybe the loan is made to a business which is very risky and it's trying to invent a new technology, but they're not all the way there yet, but they need more money. Well, since it's very unlikely that the money come back, the bank will ask a, a higher interest rate which we know as junk debt. So, when that money is returned to the bank, it's not a thousand that's returned to a bank with, say, 10% uh, interest. It's 1100 that's returned to the bank. 
Now, when the money is returned to the bank, the bank will deleverage this down to the principal, which is 100 for you. And then uh, that 100 that is left is the bank's profit. Now, um, those got to come from somewhere. Because the bank just created $900 out of nothing. And then destroyed $900 out of nothing. But there's a hundred bucks that was created in the whole process that had to come from somewhere. Where does that money come from? Well, in the end, somebody has to print it. It has to be lent into existence by the central bank. And as Jerome Powell himself has said multiple times, the Federal Reserve does not have spending powers. They have lending powers which is part of the current repo crisis predicament because uh, the Federal Reserve just can't lend any more money into existence. Okay, there, there's a lot there. The first uh, kind of, I guess, smaller question I wanted to ask, is it fair to say that you fall in a, in a broad school of what's called Austrian economics, or is this kind of an unrelated matter of a Keynesian versus Austrian uh, way of thinking? Uh, I would like to say that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to supersede both schools. I'm, I don't fall into any one school. I've never uh, read any Austrian theoretics, uh, economics book. I've never read any Keynesian economics book. So, uh, I've never done an economics education either. I've literally just taught myself by observing reality, reading news messages over the years making internal predictions, being very wrong, but smart enough not to open my mouth, and learning from that. So, whatever reality does, that's the school I am at. Now, you're, you're, you mentioned here that there's an issue with too much debt in the Federal Reserve. So, can you begin by kind of outlining to the average person that isn't familiar with the repo markets, what the repo markets are and why this ties into uh, debt and too much debt and the Federal Reserve. Right. Well, the repo markets, and I'll tell you this, I don't have an interest, intricate understanding of the repo market mechanics. I've seen the picture <laughs> and I've decided not to dive deep into repo market mechanics. But I understand the gist of it. And the gist of it is, it's the shortest term lending facility there is. Just as you can uh, buy 10-year treasuries, get your money back in 10 years, uh, or two-year treasuries, at some point you're going to get to a day. Uh, and that is what the repo market basically is. It's overnight and daily lending. Now, the people who will make use of that uh, are generally banks, banks amongst each other, and hedge funds. Because hedge funds use it for leverage. Um... If you think retails afford a lot of leverage, the real leverage is in the hedge funds. And what they basically do is uh, they lend a bunch of money uh, in the repo market. They invest it into the stock market as day traders. Uh, they make a bunch of money and then they return the money overnight and, well, keep the difference. Naturally, if they perform well, they make a lot of money. And if they perform badly, well, they're going to have to cough up the money somewhere else or, you know, lend more next time. Now, oh, you want to say something? Yeah. So when you say leverage, you mean that hedge funds are taking the stocks they own and using it as collateral 
to get more money uh, at an interest rate. They're borrowing money, uh, and you said it's for like a day or overnight, not for a long period of time. And then with that borrowed money, they then buy more stock, essentially getting 2x, 3x, 4x exposure or some sort of margin leveraged exposure. Think to 7 stocks. to 10x. That's that'll probably 7 to 10x. Yeah, well, okay. with the that's the second part where I was coming to. Uh, because we've been living in such a low interest rate environment for such a long time, uh, and the rates have just been going down and down and down, this has basically created moral hazard. Now, what moral hazard means is people will lend unscrupulously. Uh, stuff you would normally not invest in because it's too risky has now become, relatively speaking, not too risky because it's the only thing that yields any profit. If you're trying to invest in a 10-year treasury right now, in 10 years, you will get 1.4% your money back. And the CPI uh, report that's going to come in tomorrow is expected to top 4.5%. So, uh, that's, just, that's just not a good investment. You will lose 3% of your money in a year. Just, just in, not even in a year. In long, you will lose your money. <laughs> that's, the, that's the point. So, people will invest in more riskier and riskier assets. Junk debt, for instance. And, or increase leverage. Because, you know, if you can only get a percent, well, 1% of 1,000 is more than 1% of 100. So, if you go 10x uh, with your 100 bucks, at least you still get some profit. And that's what the entire system is floating on right now. So... If I understand this correctly, you have a system where there's low interest rates, so sitting on cash gives you nothing. Mm. Then you have an uptick in inflation that recently happened. And what this means is that everyone should invest in everything, pretty much. And so almost anything that has a heartbeat of a financial heartbeat of any kind is getting investment. Well, that's and I'm the... guessing this is where cryptocurrency is going to come into the, to the later part of our conversation. Uh, later, sure. But uh, that is all what you can consider post-COVID. And the repo crisis, uh, the first one at least, happened in, on September 16th, 2019. So that came at the end of the past 10 years of QE and the distortions that has caused into the market. People think QE isn't inflationary, but I've written an article on my website, uh, desogames.com, uh, that says uh, QE is inflationary and I've got the charts to prove it. That is because if you overlay multiple charts with each other uh, and you forget the y-axis for a moment, and you just look at the line pattern, then um, food expenditures, um, uh, money stock, inverted velocity, and total... Uh, sh uh, share of the top 1% of the total amount of wealth in the economy. All those line up. And it's very striking, uh, especially that um, M1, meaning money stock velocity, how often money changes hands. If you invert that uh, and you overlay it with the, uh, the total share of the assets of the one top 1%, lines up almost perfectly. So basically what's been happening with QE 
and why it is inflationary, but we haven't seen it yet, is because there are certain beneficiaries from QE, and it's not you and me. It's uh, the banks, which the, uh, the Federal Reserve uses to basically launder the money, because the Fed, uh, especially what they've been doing lately, is basically uh, the government sells to primary banks, and the primary banks sell to the Fed two or three days later, who buys the bonds at the premium, and that is new money. So that is how even more new money is pumped into the system because the banks are complicit in basically laundering the government bonds into the Fed's balance sheet. So sorry, sorry to cut you off. Just, just, just before yeah. um you, you go further, um th there's a lot you're saying here. Uh, I I wanted to kind of pull pull back to something you mentioned, uh, the concept of inflationary. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously this is going to be a critical part of this discussion. Can you talk about how you you track and model and think about the, the term inflation? What, what do you mean track and model? Oh, sorry. Um, in, in the Bitcoin crypto space, sometimes the word inflation is confused. People say that the printing of money is the same as inflation, but others say that it's the, it's the rate, r rise of prices of consumer goods. But then there's also debate about which consumer goods you're going you're gonna to look at when you talk about inflation. So my question to you is when you say, um, for example, you just said it, um, it's going to have it's very inflationary, but we haven't seen it yet. Um, can you kind of just uh, you uh, know, help help the average person understand what, sure. what you mean by the word inflationary? I'm just I'm going to blow your mind. They're both right. Inflation isn't as simple as money is printed. Therefore, there's inflation. Yet it is. So there's two components to inflation. Uh, well, there's actually three components. And I've got a couple of books coming out pretty soon in which I... Uh, well, the first book is called The Definition of Money in which I explain inflation uh, in thoroughly. So we can finally end the debate. But uh, of the three components, two of them are price inflation and currency inflation. Currency inflation is the simple one. Fed prints more money, there is more inflation. Simple as that. Because that money has to go somewhere. It's that simple. If there is more of something, it's valued less. It happens with buckets. If you've got 10 plastic buckets and somebody offers you 20 plastic buckets, you're going to say, no, I've got nowhere to put the damn things. So the value of the buckets has gone down for you because you already have a lot. Same with the currency. If a shopkeep puts a product on the shelf for, say, 20 bucks, and there is so much money around that that product sells out immediately, fills it back up, sells out immediately, fills it back, sells out immediately, he's not going to sit there and take that. He's just going to say, well, hang on a minute. Well, there's so much money around. I'm going to put it on the shelf for 30 bucks. Sells out immediately. Well, this is going to be 40 bucks then. Sells out immediately. I'm getting rich. 60 bucks. Sells out immediately. And that is how prices rise. Now, for that to happen, it means that the customers of that shopkeep first need to have that money to spend on those products. That means uh, that is where price inflation comes from. And that is why inflation isn't as simple as there is more currency, thus prices will go up. It's also the reason why 
all the supposed experts are completely confused about whether or not there's been inflation over the past uh, decade. I'm telling you, the Nasdaq went from 1,000 to 14,000. That's a 14x increase in the dollar price of everything in the stock market. What do you mean there's not been inflation? Just because food's only gone up 33%. Officially, by the way, officially. But um, the two components of the whole inflation story, as people perceive it, the currency inflation makes the currency it makes inflation possible because without extra dollars you can't have higher prices because there's not extra dollars to spend. However, it is price inflation that determines the hit, and the hit of inflation is what we're experiencing now. All this money that has been printed and that has gone into synthetic assets, which are the stock market and the bond market. All of it is going to rotate into physical assets at some point. Now, the reason why I separate those synthetic and physical is because synthetic assets basically don't exist. A share does not exist. It's a contract that we've written down on paper and it's pure information. That is also the reason why we've been able to digitize it and we can trade on the computer because it's pure information space. And we all know this. If you buy a stock for 100, and goes up 10x and it's a thousand you've not made a thousand bucks until you sell that stock uh if you never sell it and it goes back down 100 to 100 well you've never gained anything because that money that the stock was worth at some point you didn't spend you couldn't spend because you can't go to the grocery store and pay with tesla stock you have to pay with cash so as long as the money is concentrated in the stock market all that value in in effect or all that purchasing power is not circulating within the general economy which consists of services and goods but since the covid crash there's not really a reason to think anymore that the market's going to go up forever now i know that's going to sound like blasphemy to the retail crowd which arrived after the covid crash but let me tell you Shit was severely over leveraged in the start of 2020. And that is why the repo crisis happened. Like I said, it's how leverage, uh, it's how hedge funds afford their extreme leverage and they push that too far. They needed more cash than uh, the markets were willing to give them. So they had to pay a higher interest rate for it. That process basically uh, waterfalled really quickly. And we went from like 2% interest rates to 10% interest rates in a day. And that's also the moment uh, Jerome Powell swooped in with QE4, not QE, which literally they spent months arguing it was not QE, only because there was a two-day lag between when the Fed had the bonds on the balance sheet. But ever since then, you couldn't shut off the money printers anymore. As I've said in other interviews, uh, if they had stopped QE in October of 2019, repo prices would have come back. Same for November. In December, they printed half a trillion to avoid a repo end-of-the-year apocalypse. And they still printed money in January and February, which everyone seems to forget, that the amount stored in the repo facility in January of 2020 was actually higher than in December. So absolutely nothing was fixed, yet these quote-unquote temporary repo operations were supposed to end in April of 2020. So... um, 
if COVID had never had happened, we would have probably seen a massive market crash uh, in either June or July of 2020 when the markets would start to call out the Fed on their temporary bullshit. But COVID happened, so the timeline changed. Okay, so I mean, this, this is fascinating. I just want to get back to one thing. Some might argue that inflation is observable in the fact that the milk, the bread, the eggs, the houses, the education, the cars, mm. um, the, the boats, the planes, like the, the travel, the gas, this is where inflation reveals itself. And we haven't seen that up until in the last few months where now there is a bit of, of, of an uptick, quite a sizable uptick. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen that in the last couple of years. Now, when you mention that the NASDAQ ha- uh, experiences growth, uh, an, an economist might argue that isn't inflation because that isn't a consumer priced index. That's not a consumer good. That's just, you know, uh, equities that represent productivity. Well, let me cut you so off that's a then, good thing. Uh, here. Uh, I would ask you to ask the economist how many equ- equities does he own? Because I find it revealing that most of these, these theories come from central bankers who are all worth quite a bit. And you would be fascinated to see uh, exactly what ETFs BlackRock was uh, allowed to buy in, uh, after the COVID crash up to, say, like July of 2020, as well as which ETFs Jerome Powell actually owns with his private wealth. They seem to be highly correlated. Fancy that. Sorry, why is that interesting that Jerome Powell and BlackRock have similar ETFs? Uh, the, Jerome's personal wealth is in the ETFs that BlackRock was ordered to buy. Really? That's not oh, a conflict sorry. of interest? No, 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 sorry. I, I, I didn't hear you said ordered to buy. I apologize. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that's clear. Well, if we go back to the March uh, 2020 crash... Uh, a couple of the programs that were uh, started up and actually are supposed to be winded down now is the primary market uh, facility and the secondary market facility. Well, um, as part of those programs, someone had to buy the ETFs on the Fed's behalf. and The Fed doesn't buy it, it shoves around money. And BlackRock was the ones that were do that. So the Fed just told them what to buy and BlackRock bought them. So BlackRock was ordering, it was basically acting under orders of the Fed, and which ETFs they bought were the same ones that Jerome Powell owns, to a large degree. Now you could say that they're just general market funds, but uh, still, why is no one asking where Jerome Powell has all his private wealth? He's not doing too bad himself, is he? (laughs) Okay, well... it, It just floats in a giant... Conflict of interest. Just a sea of conflict of interest. So that's that's definitely fascinating. I mean, a lot of stories about what happens in finance sounds like, you know, you're, 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 it's like Hollywood almost, the, what you're describing. I it's wish. hard to believe in, in how absurd it sounds, but I, I, I'm inclined to believe you in terms of uh, what you're saying. Sometimes there's a good ending in Hollywood. There's not going to be a good ending here. So let's, let's touch on that then. One of the most fascinating things to hear about uh, uh, coming from you on other podcasts was your description of Weimar Germany and a peculiar case of hyperinflation and how it relates to 
what you believe is the current hyperinflation that started in September of 2019. So how is this similar to Weimar Germany? Well, uh, you have a browser in front of you, don't you? I well, do. I will advise anyone listening to do the same. Just go to Google and uh, just type in Weimar current, uh, currency hyperinflation. Whatever brings up the chart of the Weimar. So the German currency in uh, uh, well after World War One, it's a it's a chart that many people have seen a lot of times, and it's oh basically the value of a uh, Reichmark uh, in gold. And what I would direct everyone's attention towards is basically that at the start of 1920, Reichsmark went down. It went from, uh, well, much higher than 10 Reichsmarks per gold to 10. And then it went up again, and it went still sideways. Now, from the start of 1920 to, say, not quite the middle of 1921, the price, technically speaking, appreciated or uh, of the uh, paper mark. It became more valuable against gold. Now, that is, when you think about it, an extremely strange thing because the reason why the paper mark was hyperinflating was because uh, Weimar Germany could not pay the reparations. The reparations weren't going away. There, has, there was absolutely zero change between the fate of paying the reparations between uh, 1920 and 1921, or 1922. Not, not, nothing would have changed. Absolutely nothing could have changed. Yet, in the almost middle of 1922, we're still only at 100 paper marks versus one uh, gold mark. So. All this time, for more than two years, it was already inevitable that this thing was going to hyperinflate, yet it didn't. And that I'm is the point that I'm trying to spread and make people understand that we are already there. The dollar's already hyperinflating. We're just not yet at the exponential part. So I, I want to spell this out for some people that might not have connected all the dots. In world, at the end of World War I, Germany was forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, upon the German defeat, they essentially agreed to pay an amount of money in reparations to neighboring countries that they just absolutely could not pay. It was considered an incredibly dishonorable moment in, in German history that someone could sign this, this Treaty of Versailles. It, uh, uh, historians argue it was so bad that it essentially created World War II. Um, because it was such an incredible amount of debt. The, the issue here in the timeline that you're describing is that the Treaty of Versailles was signed and, uh, and came into effect on January 1st of 20, uh, 1920. But the hyperinflation, the actual extreme hyperinflation with, uh, in Weimar Germany that we know about historically only started two years later. Mm -hmm. And so what you're observing is that for two years, there's this incredible amount of currency stability despite the fact that everyone knew at the time this was an impossible amount of uh, repayment, there's no way this debt could ever be um, closed, re repaid. And so the, the, the point you're making is that we are in that kind of hopeful 
two-year stage. Is that fair to say? Yes. I think that was very well summarized. So, the reason why we're still in that stage is because hyperinflation is a process. And that's been what I've been trying to teach people. So, in 1921, say, when the Weimark further depreciated with the next gold uh, payment. People knew that the end was coming, but they just didn't want to believe. Some people react differently to... Uh, well, everyone reacts differently to the total collapse of their nation. And most people will simply be in denial. This causes, to, uh, causes a conversion rate to arise. Basically, one person will... Uh, changes mind quicker than another person. We're already on the side that there's a problem. Other people listening to this might come to the conclusion that there's a problem. Other people still listening to this might conclude that we're overreacting and that there isn't a problem. Yet two months later, they will conclude, oh, yet oh, there is a problem indeed. So as this knowledge of there is a problem propagates through society, you do see. Um, inflation but it's not yet quite hyperinflation like we're looking at log charts here and between uh say the bottom in 1920 and before it went exponential in 1922 the y mark did depreciate quite a bit it's just not as much as you would expect if you look at everything after the middle of 1922 yet that after was still inevitable now, indeed, we are in a situation right now where not just the U.S., but many, if not all, West, advanced Western economy, economies. It's truly a historical situation. This has never happened before. The world was so indebted. But it can't possibly be paid back. And we all know this at some level, yet we still need to buy bread tomorrow. Like, we're still going to go hungry tomorrow if we don't exchange something for bread. So we still all have a vested interest in keeping the system afloat as it is. So this is basically just being stuck between a rock and a hard place or an uh, unstoppable force trying to hit a immovable object. And it's it just... Uh, expresses itself into a slow slide down rather than event. And that is also something I'm trying to teach people is that we have the benefit of hindsight, especially in the computer age where we can pull up a chart at any given time. We see Weimar inflation as an event because we didn't live through those four or five years in which it happened. We lived past that. We can summarize the last four years in seconds. Uh, 2016, 2017, 2018. I'm going through years here. So you have to understand that people from 10 years from now are going to look at this conversation and everything that happened a year before and a year after in the blink of an eye. And to them, it's going to seem like it all happened so fast. But to us, it certainly doesn't. And, um, well, we've seen the CPI explode now. And the CPIs have, well, that's the Consumer Price Index, which uh, indicates the official amount of inflation. And we know it's heavily suppressed because they keep changing the methodology to include stuff that doesn't go up and throw stuff out that does go up. So 
the fact that that one is blowing out far beyond expectations, that is the last phase. That's not the beginning of the whole story. No, no, that's the end. That's basically the final car chase before we face down the end boss. Okay, jumping around a little bit here, and, and Kieran, thank you so much for, for kind of playing it a bit slower. I, I know you're very fast, mm. uh, and I'm kind of keeping you... Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fleshing this out a bit for people that might not be oh no uh, no 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 please do the same, please do the at la- the same place in the last few years um, uh, last few years last few months i've been desperately trying to just get all of this knowledge converted to people who don't know any of this because there's simply no time anymore to give anyone a uh, three or four year economic uh, education in how all of this grips together this is a crisis situation and people need to act to save their life savings Right. So uh, w- one thing I wanted to kind of get to here is I'm looking at inflation as measured by the CPI mm. in the United States. And I'm noticing that in most of 2020, if not all of 2020, it's pretty low, you know, 1.3%, 1.4, 1.2 mm. uh, in November, 1.2 in December, yeah. and in January 1.4. And, uh, and then I look and I notice something interesting, which is that in February of this year, it bumps up a little bit to 1.7 with food uh, leading the charge at 3.6% inflation. This is annualized over the, the past 12 months. But then I see something interesting, which is that in, in, uh, in April, it jumps to 2.6%. And then now in uh, May, it just came out as 4.2%. So it looks like a quick and very rapid growth. Again, 4.2 isn't crazy. But the fact that it's grown so quickly in such a short amount of time um, is a bit uh, di- uh, un- uncomfortable. So c- t- tell me about that. Like, where are we now then? Well, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, you want to... At some point, I can't warn anymore. We're just fucked. What do you, you want you want me to say? Stop the money printing and everything will be fine? They're not going to stop money printing. They can't. The economy will collapse. I mean, you've seen the, the, the same news messages as everyone else asked that there's now half a trillion parked in the reverse repo operation. So we don't just have a repo crisis now, we've got a reverse repo crisis too. And everyone's not really bothered by it because no, that's how the system's supposed to work. No, 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 that stuff is not supposed to be there. I can tell you why that is happening. There's too little uh, collateral in the markets. So uh, again, to uh, lend stuff, you also need collateral. And in the repo market, uh, basically, companies were offering up treasuries as collateral for cash. But in the reverse repo market, you can offer up cash for collateral, and that collateral is treasuries. So banks are actually pulling treasuries out of the Fed because they've got too much money and not enough collateral to cover their balance sheet. There's only one way to fix that. You need more treasuries. How do you create more treasuries? The federal government of the U.S. needs to spend more. I'm not joking. They're running too small a budget deficit. If you want those repo, the reverse repo to go away, the U.S. government actually just needs to borrow another trillion. So it seems like, uh, from what you're saying, the only solutions that are put on the table is to print more money. And the problem is that too much money is being printed. And no, so this is... No, 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 no. We passed that. 
the only solution now is to print more money faster. They're not printing money fast enough. There's two sides to this. On the one hand, you've got the actual cash, the dollars that circulate. On the other hand, you've got the government bonds. Because again, uh, money can't be printed into existence. It has to be lent into existence. It's all just accounts in a computer somewhere. So, um, all this leverage, meaning, again, what I said earlier, you put 100 in the bank, the bank leverages up to 1,000. Well, where does the 100 go? Because the 100 is still, it's, it, well, it's got to go somewhere. Well, that 100 is invested into treasuries. So, uh, when you look at a bank's balance sheet, they've actually got tons and tons and tons of government bonds in there, which are not yielding anything. But the higher their balance sheets go, the more treasuries they need as collateral. These things move independently from each other because they still need to find the, uh, the treasuries. Uh, and they can't find them anymore because the Federal Reserve is the one that's buying up all the treasuries because of QE. So there's another answer to this whole story. Just stop QE. There's no reason for QE. There is too much liquidity because the liquidity gets stored at the Fed because the, the people don't need money anymore. They need the collateral. So if the Federal Reserve stops QE... <laughs> Then the mortgage market crashes because they're also still buying like 40 billion a, uh, a month uh, mortgage-backed securities. And people haven't noticed it, but uh, if you look at MBB, or the ticker symbol MBB, uh, that is the basically uh, the mortgage-backed ETF. Uh, it's got a bunch of mortgage bonds in there from Fannie Mae, Freddie and everything. It is um, back at 2019 levels. It's actually like 80% of the way down to the bottom in March. It fell off a cliff la last January. So Yeah, I'm, look I'm looking at that now. It's yeah, very interesting. Yeah, the housing market isn't as stable as people think it is. Uh, they think because most of the stuff is fixed rate now. Even though there's still people with adjustable out there. It's insane, but they still exist. Even because people think it's all fixed loans, it's not a problem. Yes, it is. Because people don't just have mortgage debt. They've got credit card debt and student loan debt and uh, car debt and uh, who else? What kinds of debts are out there? In any case, they still need to be able to service the mortgage per month. And uh, it's all nice and well that uh, the amount per month paid keeps getting lower and lower or you can extend mortgages now. And they were trying to plan that with the new fiscal budget. Um, someone still suffers. And that is the people uh, receiving the money for the mortgage, which is the banks. So that eats, it eats into bank corporate profitability. So if the Federal Reserve stops uh, QE, uh, their flunkies in the banks also don't get paid their premiums anymore. And that profit disappears. So uh, and that is going to... That means less money on their side... Oh, God, it's a mess. Sorry, I'm looking at MBB shares. It's an ETF of mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities are essentially, um, it's like holding a bond, but instead of a government-issued bond, it's full of people's mortgages that they're repaying, and you're expected to get like 1% to 3%. It's sort of um, something stable, like a bond that you would hold. And I'm observing that this ETF has dropped maybe 5% in the last 12 months. 
uh, from a year-to-date perspective, they've only dropped 0.8%. I'm I'm curious why, um, like why you're 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 mentioning that it's pretty extreme because when I look at the 15-year chart, it doesn't look very much out of the scale of normal for the, the this ETF. Sure, but um. On the longer scale, it doesn't, but on the shorter scale, it does. Simply because after COVID happened, it also went up very much. And the ETF, because it's mortgage bonds, moves at a glacial pace, uh, which has bothered me, let me tell you. But compared to May last year and June and July and everything, it's down. It's just gone down again. Which is strange, considering housing prices have absolutely exploded. You would think that MBB would be doing well. Right. I mean, so housing prices. Uh, I hear this a lot. I'm from Canada. Here we have the largest housing yeah. bubble in the world, I believe. Oh, yes. But, I've been uh, reporting on that as well. In a lot of places around the world, you don't see a- an insane growth in housing. Like... I believe in many cities in the United States, it's fair to say that in the last 10 years, you wouldn't have really made a lot of money in houses. Oh, really? Go look up for me the German house price index. Okay. So I've got some raw data here from... Uh, trading economics that's right and let me just pull up the 10 year and okay so it looks like in 10 years from uh roughly 2011 till now we've got a doubling yeah the 25 year chart reveals that the prices have doubled but really they've doubled in the last 10 years not in the last 25. You will find on the German houses price index that they basically did not notice 2008 because they didn't have a correction. I don't think they even had a housing bubble back then. But since about 2010, after an initial small price spike, there is a basically perfect parabolic curve upwards. If you imagine that curve into the next five years, it doesn't look like it's going down it looks like it will go up exponentially. Right, except when you have something that's productive and you have like natural things like, you know, let's say 3% inflation per year, any productive asset should expect a 3% or 5% return per year, hypothetically. And that always draws a parabolic curve, an exponential curve. Because no. it's, there's more capital, you get 5% next year, there's even more capital. Uh, no, I mean, that's would a you fallacy. expect to be... Oh, okay. Where, where is the capital coming from? Like, if, if everything, if everything goes up 3-5% a year, then there's inflation to 3-5% a year. If the CPI is 0% and every single asset goes up 5%, then the logical conclusion is the CPI is fucking lying. Well, so th- this argument, I think, makes a lot of sense, but because the CPI, which essentially is a basket the of CPI goods that- doesn't include housing. They've literally right. taken everything out of the CPI that is going up in price. And they've been doing that for years. It's called hedonic adjustment. No, I don't know what that word means. 
they don't either. Right. So the, the I, I think I'm quite compelled by this argument that the CPI is misleading because it's excluding uh, goods that are growing quite quickly. But looking at this chart, all I'm observing here is, like you said, something like a three to five percent, maybe even less inflation over, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, it doesn't seem very crazy. I mean, is, is this is this in nominal terms or is this real terms or housing is this uh, has, uh, housing doubled in Germany within like five to seven years? That is extreme. We're talking about housing here. Housing is one of the biggest investment anyone can make. Uh, if if you uh, have to pay back, because if you take a mortgage, you're taking out a loan. So you're taking on debt and you have to pay it back. If you have to pay back half a million or you have to pay back a million, that's a big, big fucking difference. And this time it's for the same house. You mentioned that Canada has got the biggest housing bubble in the world. Well, the reason why I found a German housing bubble is because there's a website out there, betterdwelling.com, and I would uh, highly recommend any Canadian uh, interested in anything housing uh, to go look there and just bookmark it. They mentioned that the OECD came out with a new research recently that said that uh, the, the total amount of investment capital in, within an economy that is available to, for productive investment within Canada was 5% above the, second, uh, the one in, in second place. It was like 37% or something of total investment capital is going into housing in Canada. Well, the second one was Germany with 32%. So uh, according to that chart, they were, they were above the number three, New Zealand. And I happen to know that the Aussies definitely have a uh, housing bubble. So I don't think their next door neighbors are faring any better. So Germany has a housing bubble. I know that for sure. And I, I would argue that Vancouver most certainly has arguably the most, one of the most extreme housing bubbles. And, and Canada, oh, yeah. like the Canadian. It's it's very bad. It's very obvious here. Again, when 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 you, I think in Vancouver, it's something like just a few years, and you you have a doubling, like four or five years, uh, in some cases. You want to know another extreme statistic? Sure. You know, you know why I know that all of this housing is all phony and it's going to come down hard and it's not going to end well, because I saw a message pass by that twenty five percent of the age group 25 to 35 in Canada bought a house since the pandemic. That is not the most credit worthy of age groups. So 25% of, of the, 25 to 35 year olds. Okay, yes, so that, that would include population. you and I. I'm, yes. Right. Yes. Right. The entire population. I also saw Since a message by, uh, passed by, uh, by the way, that uh, in America, at least, 63% of all millennials uh, who bought a house since the pandemic now regret it. <laughs> so uh, I think in Canada, they'll be about the same. I have seen a lot of my friends talk incredibly highly of buying houses, which is insane given how expensive and how large of a commitment it is. Um, one thing that's fascinating to me is, uh, and I've read like Irrational Exuberance by Robert Schiller, um, is the fact that, you know, sorry, let me restart by saying, Robert Schiller observes, and he, he won a Nobel Prize in economics, he observes mm -hmm. that bubbles happen when people only say that an asset can go up. They, they can't imagine the asset coming down for any reason. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to friends, often what I hear is, why are you still renting? You should be buying 
buying is always good. You always make tons of money. You should buy. And I have friends that are buying, you know, whatever it is, apartments with huge mortgages that are going to take a very long time to pay back. And yeah, it's, it's weird because I would never buy shoes like this. I would never buy a car like this. But people are buying houses like this because they're, they're under the illusion that they can only go up. Well, they're not seeing the house. They're seeing the, the price. They're seeing, they basically have the classic dollar signs in their eyes. There used to be a reason why cartoons were drawn that way, you know? Because, you know, people actually get dollar signs in their eyes. They can't see anymore. They only see the money. Right. I'm going to ask one last thing, and it's, it's going to be cut so that it goes back to the beginning here, because I just want to tie back in to the September 2019 repo, repo situation, and then we're going to go past into the t talk about what to do about inflation. So... Going back to September of 2019, mm. what happened? Uh, well, why don't you 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 just ex explain it one more time? Why this was the triggering of the hy hyperinflation in September of 2019? Inevitability. Simple word. It means that it there is not a thing anyone could have done in any sort of situation with any kind of knowledge. That would have changed the course of history from that point onward. You could have uh, gotten the biggest saint into the Fed chair or the most evil person you know, and assuming that they, you know, know enough about economics to hold down the job, would have come both to the same conclusion we have to print money. If we don't print money, the system collapses today and we get lynched. That has basically been true on a daily basis since September 2019. And only now are we seeing the inflation kick in. Yes, because we now, thanks to COVID and the absolute chaos it has created, not, not just the virus, but uh, more of the response to the virus and the highlighting of incompetence within uh, the ruling class, basically the billionaires are bailing out. They're not bailing anyone out. They're bailing themselves out. They're getting out of the stock market. Jeff Bezos is retiring as CEO of Amazon. Well, fair on him. I mean, he's run the company for a long time. But what people might not know that he sold like $12 billion worth of stock over the past year. Where has that money gone? Well, not into synthetic assets, that's for sure. And that's just one guy. Uh, even at the current price of 28 bucks an ounce of silver, which is far higher than it was in 2019, Warren Buffett can basically buy out all the silver on the U.S. comics, which is the future exchange for silver, with 5% of his position. I'm not joking. 5% of his cash position, all right? Not his net worth. No, 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 no. His money. Just 5% of his money. Wow. Yeah, that's how insane it's become. There... I mean, well, your podcast is also about crypto scams, right? So you sure. know the thing too about Ponzi. Well, oh, yes. Then you know that Ponzi's keep their victims interested in the Ponzi by continually offering outsized returns. Absolutely. Well, then That's I how would they... like to remind you that the NASDAQ has gone up from 1,000 to 14,000 in the last 10 years. If you put 1,000 in, or, no, 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 let's say it another way. Uh, well, that's not entirely true either. Anyway, 
if you put a thousand in ten years ago, you're now at fourteen thousand. The same with if you put a billion in ten years ago, you're now at fourteen billion. <laughs> well, food prices have gone up only thirty three percent, but that's again because well, if you put money into the stock market, it stays in the stock market. Like you, you can buy a share for a hundred bucks, and that hundred bucks will be transacted to someone else, but that hundred bucks will circulate. Once that share goes up in price because more people want more shares, then the, your numbers on your computer say 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. But there's not actually any circulating money there. It's just that um, in another part of somewhere else, somebody spent that amount of money. And that money was transacted to God knows who. It's not all part of the same local economy. But when everyone buys raw resources, which are used in products everywhere, so if someone speculates on the price of aluminium, well, that affects everything that's made out of aluminium because the people in the factories have to pay more for the aluminium. So all aluminium cans go up in price. And that is why we, quote unquote, see inflation now. Because the market has become so, over well, the stock market has become so overpriced compared to reality, that the only bargains left are to be found in reality. So people have been putting their money into reality. One of the reasons why the CPI is blown out now is because one of the few things they haven't uh, ripped from the CPI yet, though they will soon, is used cars. Well, thanks to everyone being locked up in their homes, uh, we basically put um, global demand on semiconductors, so computer parts, and because of the first uh, phase of hyperinflation, there was plenty of cash because, you know, people printed like crazy and the market went back up. So that cash was basically focused on one area. It's like a World of Warcraft raid boss. We focused down the semiconductor industry as a planet. It's quite marvelous when you think about it. But that meant that cars, which also use uh, electronics a lot, uh, can't find electronics anymore. So that's caused the semiconductor shortage, which, of course, if no new cars are built, eventually, when people still want to buy cars, they're going to look at used cars. And because they still can't find any new cars because of supply shortages, which is still a direct cause of too much money, the price of used cars goes up because the supply goes down. And when people see that, another frenzy starts, and they're basically GameStop squeezing used cars. And that, because the used cars are still part of the CPI, has blown out the CPI way past expectations. Wow. Um, I'm just looking here at the NASDAQ, and uh, the numbers are, are a tiny bit different than what you said. They're still extreme. I noticed here from March of 2009 until the current moment, we're looking at a 10x increase. So roughly 12 years for a 10x increase, which is still pretty incredible uh, in terms of returns. Um, and of course, most of the returns are post-COVID, which is also pretty strange given how many people lost their jobs mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the likely decrease in productivity, not an increase in productivity. So let's pivot now and... Uh, to the to the listener that may or may not fully understand how this inflation plays out, let's just assume that there is going to be a sizable amount of inflation. So how does one 
effectively mitigate their risk to inflation? By non-deprecating assets. So what's the difference between a deprecating and a non-deprecating asset? Non-deprecating assets means it doesn't change over time in both functionality and integrity. So if you imagine the classic example, a gold bar, gold doesn't interact with any other substance. Um, so it, it, it stays in the same shape and it's not affected by, um, well, it is affected by wear and tear, which is just abrasion, but it's not affected by rust or oxidation or anything of like that. You, you put a, a gold bar in a vault and in a thousand years, you'll pull it out exactly the same. Iron, at least not stainless steel, but what we used throughout history, rusted pretty goddamn quick. So iron didn't retain its value. Like if you made an iron knife within half a year, it was useless because it rusted through. The same okay, can be so said about technology. So you don't want to invest in technology either. A car is worth less the next year and worth less the next year again because a new model comes out. So that's also deprecation. So functionality and integrity. So functionality, for example, you wouldn't want to buy a jug of milk because the functionality is excellent. You're always going to want some milk, but the integrity goes down after a week when yeah. the milk spoils. On the other hand, you take something like, uh, for example, like a really good GPU or a computer Maybe the no. Um, no, 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 integrity let me, let me, is... Let me just oh, cut sorry. you off right there, because that's exactly the wrong example. If you pick a really high-class GPU, you're paying an extra premium for being the fastest. So the price performance of the highest-class GPU is less than the second-highest GPU. Plus, GPU, uh, GPUs are technology, and especially in graphical technology, uh, even though Moore's Law is dead, uh, we still get quite a bit gains over a short period of time. So you can expect your uh, high-class GPU in three to four years to be as good as mid-range. That's an immense deprecation. You're losing value hand over fist because if you spend the same amount of money four or five years later, you're getting vastly amounts more of computing power. Yes. So yes, uh, uh, what I meant to say was exactly that, was that milk uh, fails in terms of integrity and maybe, you know, a computer monitor or a computer part uh, maintains its integrity, its functionality depreciates because everyone else is way better well, uh, uh, in the future as technology gets better. Assume, uh, assuming that the uh, GPU still boots up because there's plenty of computer... Because we never expect computer parts to live beyond five years, most of them don't. Like, uh, well, they do, but uh, something... They aren't designed for it. Anything you get beyond five years is basically a giant bonus. So, uh, of course, they're made to last as long as they can, but still, because computers are a high-complexity product, there's tons and tons of condensators on a motherboard where if one of them blows up, the motherboard blows up. So uh, a transistor is made out of billions of little tiny switches of which, if a few of them fail, or maybe even one, it used to be the case that just one of them had to fail, then the whole thing breaks. If it's the wrong one, definitely your CPUs will just be useless. So uh, it's a highly complex, fastly advancing, um, short-term product. It's 
tech is the worst thing to uh, invest in as far as deprecation goes because tech deprecates the fastest. It undergoes wear and tear, but it also undergoes technological innovation at a very high rate. On the other hand, gold is nothing to innovate about. Gold is gold. Uh, 0.999 fine gold will be exactly that in 10,000 years of technological development because it's elementary. It's an element. You can't change the element. So um, there are still differences, actually, because I learned not too long ago that uh, if you have silver blanks from which silver coins are struck, uh, they're 0.999 fine silver, but in that last uh, 0.01% of uh, impurities, if that contains too much selenium, the silver blank will shatter when you strike it. So if, even within that little bit of margin, there's still stuff you need to watch out for. Yet, silver is still silver. Gold is still gold. Aluminium is still aluminium. But uh, iron, when it rusts, is no longer iron. It's rusted iron. And you can't just build uh, a side of a ship out of it because it'll sink. So that is why some things hold value and some things don't hold value. Now, obviously, there's more to it than that still because demand in supply and demand is psychological. So if gold retains its value because it stays the same, but nobody desires the functionality of gold, like nobody wants to have golden jewelry anymore, uh, then gold still goes down in price and value because people don't want it anymore. It's pure psychological. If we don't want it, it has no value. The cats and the dogs are not going to care. So yeah, l l let's kind of keep this... Um, I mean, let, let's, let's build this up, right? So yeah. if you know inflation is coming, what that means is that your dollars are going to buy less goods and services that you need on a day-to-day. -day. Mm. So you're going to need food. You're going to need a place to stay. You're going to need clothing. You're going to need all of these things, toothpaste, milk, ev everything. You're just going to need everything to go about your, your life, car, gasoline. Now, you know hyperinflation is coming. The first thing is you don't want to be holding cash. That's kind of obvious. But you're asking yourself, where should I put this cash? Now, someone like Mark Cuban, and I, I'm, I'm not saying anything good about him, but I, I know he mentioned at one point that a smart investment strategy for someone who is young is rather than trying to find something to invest in, is just buy the things you know you're going to need anyways in the future. So for example, uh, make sure you have all of the rice and the pasta and the toothpaste and the spare shirts, spare underwear, you know, backup uh, uh, electronics that you know you're going to buy in a year, for example, or in a few months. Buy all of those things earlier. Why is it that you're buying gold? It, it seems like this, there's a bit of an interesting... Oh, it's very simple. Very simple. Because I'm letting all of you idiots buy all the stuff I want, and I'm going to buy it off you idiots for gold on the very, very cheap, because none of you will have gold, but you're all going to want it. But I'll have gold, and I want all your stuff. <laughs> that's but, that's uh, really it. Because, fine, fine. Tell me how you're going to eat a GPU. Well, no, but what I'm saying is, like, why not just buy a bunch of canned goods and buy some pasta, like things that don't perish? Sure. How long um, is that going to last? I mean, if we talk about hyperinflation, hyperinflation can only last a few years, and a lot of well, things I'll like tell pasta, that to the Venezuelans. <laughs> that's that's been happening since what 2012. It's still going on over there. 
Right, but the the approach for the Venezuelans is to always just hold your wealth in the things you have. Oh Don't yeah, ever... now yeah now, but uh, that wasn't the case ten years ago. A lot of them got cut out in the in out in the open. Go Google the Maduro diet. Right, right. Um, th- look, it's it's that simple. Most of the people are not going to be in time. Most of the people are going to lose out, and a lot of people can starve. Okay, so this is something that Bitcoiners also say a lot of the time. They say that everyone is going to regret it. Everyone is going to be left out. They're, they're only going to care about it when it's too late. But my concern is, it seems like what we really care about at the end of the day is food, rent, education, water, um, electronics, things that we actually need. Yeah. So why is it that people are going to be running towards gold? Why isn't it that they're just going to be buying up you know, actual things that they need? Because how long can you keep that up? Can you buy 10 years worth of canned goods? Do you have the space to store it? And if you do, how are you going to make sure you're not a warehouse for me? How am I sure that it's not going to what, Sagan? It's not going to be a warehouse for me. Oh, that you're going to take all of the things. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to buy all the stuff. I'm just going to buy a gun and take it from you. Well, so so now we're talking about sort of the 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 sort of end of civilization. Yeah, but if you need to... ten years worth of canned goods, we're talking about the end of civilization already. Oh well, I I meant more to say like if if for example you're a young person and you paid off all your debts, which is great. Don't 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 hold lots of debt. Of and course, you have let's say let's say you have thirty thousand dollars and you're sitting around, or maybe you even have a hundred thousand dollars. You've really saved well as a as a thirty year old, and you're thinking, what should I do? Um, what what I could recommend hypothetically is just buy a bunch of things that you're going to use for certain so that you don't have to pay for stuff in the next year um, or two years. Not necessarily 10 years, but, you know, a couple of years is pretty reasonable, pretty feasible. Hang on, um, hang there on. Are... Is, is that what Mark Cuban actually said? Like, if you have 100K, just uh, buy stuff you need? No, not, not 100K. He meant to say if you have a few thousand dollars, for example. Uh, um, a great a great starting point for investment is if you go to the supermarket and toothpaste is fifty percent off, you buy two years of toothpaste rather than two months of toothpaste, which is what we typically do. We typically yeah. wait for things to run out. But here's and the key he with says, that: uh, toothpaste is a non-deprecating asset because, as far as I know, toothpaste doesn't really have an expiry date. That's right. So yeah, sure, for toothpaste that works, but it doesn't work for bread. You're absolutely correct. I mean, again, it's not going to work for a lot of things, but for some things it would work. So, for example, yeah, um, but in that clothing, case, in that case, you're already setting yourself up for failure. Because, why is that? Because it works for some things, but not all things. And the most important things it works for, food, or it doesn't work for it's food. That's something you need on a daily. Water as well. Now, sure, if. N- I would like, I would like to see anyone prep for doomsday by storing a 10-year worth supply of water. This is no, I, 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 I completely agree with you that there are limits to this method, and you could probably only do this for maybe $10,000, $20,000 worth of goods before uh, your house is too full and before it becomes a liability in other ways. So let's, let's assume that you still have money left over. Now the question is, where do you put it? So you're going to say that putting it in the stock market is very risky because things are over inflated and, and everything is being AMC, GameStop, memed and 
it is highly risky, but if you know how to mitigate risk, it's not so risky at all. I can point you towards Yamana, for instance. Yamana is a gold and silver miner, uh, Yamana Gold, Inc., that um, I expect to do well in the future. It's just a uh, gold mining company, um, an established gold mining company, uh, and it has a price to book of like 1.16. Um, what that means is that the share price is basically around the same price as their assets on their books. If you look that a number up for anything in the gold sector, in the tech sector or something, you can't find one-to-one -one price to book anymore. If you can find below five, pretty good. Um, it's basically that, uh, that's another thing I'm trying to teach people. Yes, the stock market is manipulated and there's a lot of shenanigans going on, but you can't manipulate everything at the same time. It's one of the reasons why the Fed's second and primary market facility, Targeted Bonds, a very well-known company. You can find the bonds that the Fed bought uh, under the secondary market facility uh, on their website, and you won't find names that you don't recognize. Like Berkshire Hathaway is in there. Right. So the reason why they do that is because they want Berkshire Hathaway stock to go up. Why? Because everyone looks at Berkshire Hathaway. Everyone know, knows their name. So if they do well, people think, oh, the market's doing well. It's, just, it's literally just an illusion. But again, the Federal Reserve does not want you to focus on silver and gold because that raises the price of gold versus the dollar. And since gold is money, um, well, it's not legal tender right now because the shops don't take it, even though, you know, um, but it is still from a historical perspective money. We need a central value, uh, anchor. And one of those central value anchors in our society is the global reserve currency, which is the dollar. And the other one is, you know, physical assets, gold. How much do I want to desire? Uh, how much do I desire to hold a bar of gold? That's basically it. And we put a numerical value to it, and that ends up being currency. Well, if the price of gold goes up in US dollars, then effectively the US dollar becomes worth less in money, which is also gold. And that causes, well, the fact that there's a discrepancy there has basically caused all these supply chain disruptions and everything. Right. Okay, so one thing that is weird about gold is the fact that it's itself quite unstable against the CPI, um, at times losing 75% of its value against the consumer price index, and then again gaining it back and, and, and more. The concern here is that if you have a bunch of people running towards gold, you might have a speculative insanity where the price explodes, then it crashes, then it explodes again. Is it tenable to have a currency around gold like this? Yes, because you're looking at a manipulated scheme. The COMEX, or the Gold's Future Exchange, has been around for what, 40 years or something now. And what it has done is that it effectively equates paper gold to gold. 
So when you say that the price of gold has gone, uh, it has been volatile against the CPI, I would say no. The price of paper gold has been very volatile against the CPI. And what does that, that mean, paper gold? Sorry. Well, literally, naked uh, contracts promising the delivery of a gold bar that isn't there. Naked shorting in the gold market. Okay. So, uh, when we say the gold price, what we actually mean is the price of the gold futures on the comet. So, if you go to a trading site right now, you look up the price of gold, the actual price you're seeing is the price of the upcoming active month, which I think is July. So, uh, you're looking at the July 21. Uh, silver contract and the August 21 gold contract, if I remember correctly. So the entire price uh, of gold on based in dollars is based off that one contract. And the bullion banks can basically create these contracts and destroy these contracts at will. And they've been doing this according to patterns that I have very much documented and others have as well over many, many, many years. Uh, I've done so recently, but others like David Morgan have gone back 40 years, uh, all the way to the 90s. And there's just a clear pattern of um, slam downs, that's what we call them. It's on no news at a specific time when the comics opens in America every day, price drops. It just gets slammed down. And that sets the tone for the day. Like, oh, silver's going down again. Better not buy it. This is how they misdirect attention away from physical silver and gold into their paper scheme. That is SLV. So SLV is a uh, supposedly silver-backed uh, ETF. Yet during the GameStop squeeze of this year, silver was also squeezed. And SLV had an inflow of 110 million ounces in a day. We know that's not physically possible. That just, just can't happen. All right? Physics says it can't. We also had the LBMA. Why is that? Sorry. Uh, why can't it happen? Have you, have, you, have you ever tried to move 110 million ounces of silver? Shit's heavy, yo. That's multiple planes right there. That's tons and tons and tons of silver. You can't move that in a day. It all has to be verified. Because it's still precious metals. It's not just hot, just throw it in the back of a truck and make it before the moon. Meanwhile, we had the LBMA admit to an accounting error of uh, these ounces. Like, literally, literally, the silver squeeze happened. SLV uh, finds 110 million ounces of silver over the pa past three months after that. Uh, or, well, past four months now, or but three months after that event. Uh, the amount of silver in SLV was slowly drained down back to par, and after the 110 million ounces were out of it again, the LBMA immediately announces that it had a quote unquote, made a quote unquote accounting error, and about 3,300 tons of silver were mistakenly added to the balance sheet. They were never there. Jesus. How convenient. Um, you have no idea how deep and how blatant this goes i can i can show you so many charts it's, it's silly i don't even have to others can do it as well 
It's out in the open. The CFTC is in on it uh, because they know. They know uh, there was a major investigation into uh, manipulation into the precious metal markets for years. The CFTC closed it after they received more evidence. The DOJ picked it up. And three years later, uh, last year actually, they uh, concluded their case against JP Morgan and fined JP Morgan for a billion dollars for spoofing in the precious metal market, which means uh, ex instituting an order. So, say you want to buy gold for uh, 3,000 when it's only 2,000. And people see this and they're like, oh, oh, there's a lot of demand, but they're not going to immediately sell it. Like the price is going to go up. It's going to be arbitraged up. So before the price actually reaches that point, you cancel the order. So you never intended to actually buy the gold. You only intended to rise up the price with a buy order that everyone can see. And then uh, you make use of that because you bought a little bit of gold on another account and you sell that at a higher price. That's called spoofing. And the DOJ found tens of thousands of cases of spoofing. The CFTC said they found nothing after years of investigation. They're fucking in on it. I'm just seeing the amount of cryptocurrency fraud and also learning about Bernie Madoff. I'm inclined to believe you about this as well. Uh, compared, definitely... compared to the comics, uh in the precious metal markets, I would call crypto a baby who barely learned how to shit himself. There is just, there is no, there is no amount, there's no fraud in the crypto markets compared to the gold and silver markets. Uh, those people are children. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, that, um... that's how much fraud there is in the bullion markets. It's the most opaque market on the, ma on the planet. So tell me about uh, Silver Squeeze, or um, one sec, I have it here, uh, the Silver Raid. What, what's that about? Right, so uh, after the Silver Squeeze happened back in January, um, what actually happened is that Wall Street Bets got uh, cooed. Um, uh, on the 27th, they were still, um, let's say probably, uh, Engaged with silver, like they wanted to buy silver along with AMC and GME uh, and everything. But a day later, all the positive uh, silver posts were gone, which thousands of it upvotes. And now there were um, suddenly posts everywhere with tens of thousands of upvotes that uh, buying SLV was a scam, that it was a hedge fund black op to get everyone to buy SLV instead of GameStop. It's complete insanity, but the community believed it, and nobody, uh, and, well, the silver squeeze basically ended. We also had Jeff Curry from uh, Goldman Sachs go on, uh, on CNBC say the ETFs are the short. I still haven't figured out what he means by that, but basically, uh, or another thing that nobody noticed, that when Robinhood killed uh, the ability for its users to buy GME the moment that buying GameStop stopped being about a squeeze and started being a movement they also uh, reduced SLV so uh, sure, not in options but in shares so um, after that a contingent split off from Wall Street Bets and started Wall Street Silver 
and uh, the silver space. So all the people that were basically talking about silver and bullion and gold and everything. Uh, we basically rallied behind that Wall Street silver. Because we saw that here was a mass of people now suddenly interested uh, in silver. And personally, I saw a good chance to get people out of the system before it really collapsed at the time. Because this story is as all this time, it's just happening with more modern means, but the outcome will still be the same. Once all the new turns out to be a fraud, people go back to the old, who the only thing they know is secure and safe, which is just a physical coin in your hand that you can hold. Because the value is in the coin. As long as you hold the coin, you have value. And you can be certain of that. So... Uh, so I, I just want to uh, yeah. touch one more time about that, and then I want to ask about cryptocurrency and why that's not gonna gonna work. But the 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 issue I have, I I guess the 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 question I can imagine someone asking you here is that you want to hold something in your hand, you want to hold something that everyone values, but again, it seems like you have this recursive problem where it's a matter of where everyone decides to go. I, I do understand your argument that I've heard, which is that everyone's gone there in the past and it's been thousands of years, so it's pretty reliable that they'll go there again. Mm. But my concern is that you don't know that for sure and they could go to something else. Sure. Well, why do you want me to say they don't know the future? No, they can go to something else. Right. So I guess the question, the big, the big uh, turning point here is why would it either why would they not go to crypto or if they do go to crypto why would that be a terrible mistake well because again aside from the thousands of years of history based on human nature all right because we didn't have the internet for thousands of years we didn't have knowledge we didn't even have a printing press before 1500 but people still like gold thousands of years ago hundreds of years ago even today Go buy yourself one silver coin. I challenge anyone listening to this to just not invest in silver. Just buy yourself one single shiny coin. Hold it in your hand. Look at it. If you don't get a desire to buy more, I'm, I'm sorry. There's nothing they can do for you. And you just need to find some, some place else to protect yourself from hyperinflation. And yes, there are other ways to protect yourself from hyperinflation other than silver and gold. Like I said, non-deprecating assets. So stuff that doesn't change over time and it still has the same functionality in 10 years from now. And I don't think it's going to last more than 10 years. So um, a nice looking table, for instance, that will hold this value if you're careful, if you don't scratch it. Uh, but the crypto could hold this value, actually, over the next 10 years. Could very well. If, if, and that's where we get into the bad idea. The economic theories behind it were sound. And they're not. They're shit. So Bitcoin is not a store of value. Because people never tell you. And I don't think you've ever heard anyone ask you this question. What is a store of value? What value does Bitcoin store? They'll say dollar value. But <laughs> well, they're getting out of the dollar because it's worthless. So two times zero is still zero. So what value does Bitcoin store? Well, Bitcoin's usefulness. What can you do with Bitcoin? What does it do? Well, it allows you to transact trustlessly and even cross borders. Sure. 
All right, so it may have some value. But then how do you determine how much value it has? Well, you compare it. Is Bitcoin the only one that can transact trustlessly and across borders? Well, last time I checked, CoinMarketCap had more than 10,000 cryptocurrencies and uh, plenty of them can do the same. So then we have competitors. You have competition. What is the value of Bitcoin over something like Ethereum? And then you have the crypto cultists saying, oh, Bitcoin's a store of value. Um, again, Ethereum is it as well. Ethereum, same, bits on the computer. It doesn't disintegrate. It's going to be the same in 10 years from now. So if, if, if that's your definition of store of value, that's not the case. Backed by energy, Ethereum is backed by energy. Both of them are not backed by energy, by the way. And I've done a whole chapter on that in my upcoming books. But if you want to argue backed by energy, Ethereum is backed by energy. Same. Still uses computers, still uses electricity. So what's the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin? Well, Ethereum can do more transactions per second. Ergo, Ethereum has more value. And the fact that Bitcoin's higher priced than Ethereum right now is none of my concern. It just means that all of you are idiots. Okay, so... Um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around because there's, there's a lot going on here, right? There's this inflation, like, how do you get out of it? Like, like, what are the things you like in gold, things you don't like in Bitcoin? Uh, don't, don't, don't focus on inflation. Just forget about inflation, man. Focus on the crypto. Yeah. So with crypto, for example, uh, people would say that Bitcoin is better than Ether or some other altcoin because it, it's older. Like, it's just trusted. Ethereum was created by a guy. Oh, great. Let guy. me just fire up my Apple II computer from 1985 and play a few video games. I'm sure it'll be better than the latest Call of Duty. But they make the same argument about Bitcoin that you would make about gold, which is that it has a long history of being accepted. And Bitcoin has the longest. Like, it's not long, but it's the longest. Uh, no, Bitcoin isn't accepted anywhere. Not even in El Salvador. They're using the dollar price of Bitcoin. So basically, uh, they've, they've basically not adopted another currency. They've stayed with a dollar peg, and now they're just pegging another currency to the dollar, which usually trades in that currency anyway. It's like a floating peg. So it, it's a little bit weird, I'll admit, but um, it's the same with PayPal. PayPal hasn't adopted uh, Bitcoin because the merchants don't touch Bitcoin. You can pay the merchant in Bitcoin, but PayPal gives the merchants dollars and PayPal handles the conversion of Bitcoin to dollars immediately. So even PayPal doesn't want to touch Bitcoin and all of this shit can be turned off just as easily as it was turned on. So. Right, but, but, but you asked about why not Ethereum, and I'm telling you that Ethereum is just worse than Bitcoin in terms of being accepted, being recognized, being known, being held by people. Uh, and then it gets worse as you go down the list. All right, so like fine. Well, Bitcoin is less accepted than gold. Gold is accepted everywhere in the world. There's 8 billion people vying for gold. Bitcoin's worse than gold. Uh, right. Uh, I, I, it's I'm... a stupid argument. It's been around longer, so it must be better. No, it's been around longer, so it must be worse. That's the way it goes with tech. With no, no, gold, I, I, it's an element. All right, you can't say, well, the element's been around longer. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how the universe is structured. <laughs> this is so stupid. Right. Sorry, I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to figure out here, and I'm not saying I, I know 
exactly the right way to go is I'm trying to like ascertain why Bitcoin wouldn't be a good choice. I I know one good answer, it's worthless. which is that Bitcoin is backed by tethers. Tethers are propping up the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency market. Oh, um, no, 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 no. Look, look uh, yes, the price of Bitcoin right now is propped up by Tether, so the price of Bitcoin will fall the moment Tether goes away. That's to do with uh, demand and supply. Simply put, the market thinks that one Tether equals $1, even when it doesn't. So when one Tether wants to buy one Bitcoin, people think there's dollar demand for the Bitcoin because the Tether, tether is valued at a dollar. Moment Tether goes away, a lot of the dollar demand goes away because it's all valued at one dollar per Tether, which is wrong. So uh, that's going to collapse the price. But that's not what you asked. You asked if crypto will do well in hyperinflation, and it won't, simply because Bitcoin's worthless. There's no there's no value there behind the network. The, sure, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of computers calculating these Bitcoin transactions. But what are they calculating? What do these transactions, these mythical beings, consist of? Well, they're basically just solving a bunch of Sudokus, and one of them will be first, and they print few Bitcoin for them, and they then do it all over again. So it doesn't actually produce anything, because the answer to the question that we're trying to solve, uh, the hash that they're trying to find out is the correct one, has no value. Because the moment they answer that question, it's tossed aside, and the next question is asked, which hash is the right one? And the moment they find that, they just delete all the work, the right answers, the wrong answers, doesn't matter. They just ask you, what hash is the right one? And they will just keep doing this over and over and over and over again. So it's like finding gold in the ground, building a mine, Extracting the gold out of the ground, refining it, grinding it up into powder, mixing it up with carbon, and putting it back into the ground, and starting all over again. What's the fucking point? There is no point. Right. Bitcoin mining isn't productive. It's burning energy, but it's not storing value. That's your contention here, is that there's no value being stored. Like gasoline stores value. You put it in your car, and then you can expend this value. To, Let's to say move. utility. It stores no utility. Well, people, people say value all the time, but when you ask what is value, well, I've written a book about 40,000 words, uh, words on it, so uh, that, that is a very complex subject. But when you say utility, basically how something is used. A mug has the utility of holding liquid. That is understandable. Bitcoin has the utility of its transactions because it is a transactional system. Just like uh, a federal bank uh, database, only this is a mathematically decentralized database. And let me make this very clear. And I've written this in my own article on why I hate Bitcoin and why Tether will destroy it as well. I'm not against blockchain. All right. I think there's a lot of future in blockchain. Uh, I've made my own system of crypto in the books as well. So I don't think that crypto cannot be made to have value. I don't think that there's not a future in crypto. I actually think it could be a solution, a very good one. However, we must, we must design any 
sort of monetary system according to fundamental. We can't simply daydream things into reality. And that is what the crypto space currently is doing. They think that because they have math now and they, they can do whatever they want because the regulators aren't stepping in, anything they do is golden. But it isn't. Bitcoin is first-generation tech, and it has problems, economic problems, system problems. And unless they are named, unless they are allowed to be named and allowed to be discussed without immediately getting a whole fucking cult on your back saying, No, it must be good, Well, the, I'm sorry, then it's just going to die. Then we're just going to kill it. And we're just going to make a new one that's better. Because this is an unworkable situation. You can't burn the electricity use of Austria on four transactions a second. Are you fucking mad? Apparently for the last decade we've been. I can't believe people are even advocating this as a good thing. I can't believe that people even say that it uses less than the traditional... Uh, financial system uh, people have gone insane the uh, the patients are running the asylum it's it's lunacy and it just has to stop and it's not gonna stop until a lot of people are gonna get hurt and that's all i'm trying to do i'm just trying to get people to not get hurt and in the deep because there are so many assets out there that are completely manipulated the only thing I can tell people to do is buy physical silver and buy physical gold and hold on for dear life. Because it's the only thing that isn't manipulated. Yes, you still have to worry about getting a good bar from a reputable dealer. But once you've gone through that, once you've found a good private company to own a private vault, and that guarantees you that whatever's in the vault is not on their balance sheet. So it's always yours in every situation. And you put a gold bar or gold coin or a silver coin in there. And you know that in 10 years you're going to pull it out and you're going to be able to sell it. No problem. Because that has been the most liquid market for generations. That is safety. That is real safety. And I can tell you. When in, in, uh, on December 8th, 2019, when I converted my entire life savings the physical gold and silver coins and put them into a vault, pull them out of the computers and put them back into the real world? I'm scared. I'll admit that. I was scared of my wits. I, I was shaking all day. And I shipped for a few days after too because it was to me something completely new having been born in 87. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a scary thing. But you get over that. And after that, you get used to it. I, I haven't been to my vault in months. Last time I've been there was like... can't even remember. But I also know that there's nothing to fear. It's a very secure building. A very thick vault. And I also know that bank robbing today isn't exactly a practiced skill anymore. And if even if uh, robbers do exist uh, and thieves, they're going to basically walk into your home and steal your TV. Because you can just unplug it and walk out. Do it a couple of times. That's much more profitable for them to try and actually uh, rob a vault. So, I can tell you, I haven't felt safer in quite a while. I'm still panicky, and I'm still making panicky interviews, sure. But that's 
mainly because I'm genuinely a good guy. I feel uh, a connection with other people, and I'm watching just thousands march over the edge because the herd tells them to go over the edge and kill me inside. So, I think that's where you and I feel very much the same way. Uh, there's a lot of people running off of cliffs right now, you know, buying houses, um, taking out more debts, um, you know, uh, only seeing, you know, number go up in their eyes. I think cryptocurrency has, has that, um, issue for, for, for certain. I mean, it's, it's incredible the amount of absolute insanity in cryptocurrency. I'm not sure if you've really been part of the cryptocurrency community. Uh, Uh, yes, most definitely. But as a critic. Uh, I haven't uh, bought anything or traded anything purely out of principle because, again, I'm bringing out a book called Definition of Value, and if I don't fully understand value, uh, well, if I understand value, understand that Bitcoin doesn't have value, and then say, well, fuck it, I'm just going to invest because it's going to make me a lot of money, I wouldn't be any different from anyone else. So uh, I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is, and in this case, I'm trying to not put my money where my mouth is, and I'm simply staying out of crypto. So. I've been warning people to stay out of crypto, out of Bitcoin since 10,000, since 17,000, and I still don't have any regrets about that because I know how people work. People aren't, people aren't traders, people aren't day traders in their normal lives. The vast, vast, vast majority of people just want a savings account. They, they really just want to put their money into a bank, get like 4 or 5% a year, be happy with that. And just leave it, compound, compound, and in like 30 years they have a nice pension. That's a life. If you buy crypto, you have to look at the chart daily because you can get screwed on every single day. And that's just, people don't do that. They just buy a Bitcoin, they hold, and once a week they check how things are. Well, if if that once a week was the 13th and the 20th of May, you got quite a heart attack. That's right. And that's, that's, that's what I've been trying to tell people. If people got in at 17,000 and they saw that rise to 20,000, 25, 30,000, that is how you grow dollar signs in your eye. Because you see your money basically double in no time at all. And you're like, why am I putting only a thousand in when I, if I put in my entire life savings, it all doubles, you know? That's well, I know that's greed, but that's exactly how humans just work. And everyone who bought in at 10k and 70k when I was telling them, just stay out of it, just stay out of it, they all have average uh, dollar cost averages now of 40 or 50k for sure, for sure, because they were winning. I was wrong, they were right, they were beating this genius, so they were putting in more money every day, and I can guarantee that. Or just follow the Twitter of uh, Anthony Pompliano because he buys every goddamn dip there is. He must have run out of money a long time ago. He says he buys the dip anyway. So his dollar cost average is very high. Yeah, there's there's very little honesty when it comes to people in cryptocurrency talking about their gains. Because from from listening to people, you would assume everyone has 10x their money. And there's no way that this is physically possible. There's quite a few, well, quite the lack of millionaires considering Dogecoin has gone up 11,000%, isn't there? Right. Uh, This is very much the case. Like, if you actually look around and try to make a list of real millionaires and billionaires and and even people that have made 
a few hundred thousand dollars, you're going to come up with a pretty short list, but you will have to come up with an equal sized list of people that lost that amount of money. No, 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 no. A vastly, vastly, vastly bigger amount of list. For every millionaire out there with crypto, you can bet your ass there's at least a thousand people lost it all. At least. Yeah, a, a thousand people that must have lost, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars to, to, to make up for that one person that got lucky and got a million. Absolutely. Yep. And for them, that could have been the only $10,000 that they have. Uh, and that's what's happening. It's just a it's a very inefficient redistribution of wealth that's happening right now. And it's, 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 well, not, it's I, not a I, good thing. I wouldn't agree with that. I would agree. I would say that is uh, the most efficient redistribution of wealth out there. Because that's the thing. You know, uh, I'm most certainly not a communist or a socialist because that just doesn't work. However, I'm not in favor of quote unquote free market capitalism either because there's no such thing as free market capitalism. Everyone has got their own vested interest. And when you truly, truly let capitalism just run amok, just go free, then you get crypto. There's no regulation in crypto. There's no regulatory oversight in crypto. Crypto, over the past four or five years, definitely has been capitalism unrestrained. This is how it looks like. The strong win and the weak die. Yeah, it does, does not have this uh, very starry-eyed, naive a selling point that Bitcoin had in the early days where we're all going to be better off, much like what people who buy gold and silver say. Um, this has definitely not turned out to be true for the cryptocurrency space. It's, it's a very small number of people who lose everything and an even tinier, tinier amount of people that made, you know, a little bit of money. Mm. Oh, um, and, uh, I would like to uh, also add that uh, even though I'm active in the gold and silver space, uh, because of my research on the comics and everything, I am not a gold or silver bug. I am merely looking at what has the most value for money now. And when I converted my life savings into gold and silver, it was because I viewed those life savings not as my money, but as the future money for my children. And if I knew that now the cash was losing its value, but gold and silver was going to go up for a long time to come, because the cash was going to lose its value for a long time to come, I just imagined their voices in my head saying, Daddy, Daddy, if you knew, why didn't you do something? I had to do something, and that's why I went to gold and silver. But I can guarantee you that humans never learn when gold and silver are going to uh, go to the moon. And they will. You're going to get a good old-fashioned gold rush. Nothing new about that. There's plenty of historical examples of the Californian gold rush and everything. We're going to have another one, a final one, and it's going to be global. But when the taxi driver or your friends who are now all getting into housing are telling you that you should go into gold, even though you've owned gold for ages, that's the point in which I sell my gold. Because at some point, I don't know when it is, it can go on for years, but at some point in the future, hyperinflation will end through some means or another. When it does, and just before it does, you don't want to own gold anymore. Right before that sucker ends, you want to own housing. Why? Because 
Everyone's destitute. They will sell anything they have for anything that holds its value, such as gold, because housing does not. And at that point, I'll buy a house for very little gold and silver. I'll buy three houses. I'll buy five. You can buy a block of houses for almost no gold and silver at all, compared to how much money... You, it's very possible to put um, maybe ten to fifteen thousand gold and silver now, and buy an entire block of houses with that in like well, three, three to four years, saying that we go exponential in three years. So, it's entirely possible. But when that becomes possible, I will trade my gold and silver to those people, and it won't even be a rip-off because they will have something to eat tomorrow and their neighbor, whose house I didn't buy, is going to starve anyway. And when the currency finally stabilizes, housing generates income. If there's one thing gold does not do, it's generate income because it's just a bar. The price either goes up or down, but it doesn't add anything, and because it doesn't deprecate, it doesn't remove anything. That is why gold is such a store of value, because it doesn't change anything so when the currency is stable and there's deflation meaning that the currency gains more in value again because it's stabilizing the economy's recovering because it's basically bottomed out there's not a lot to recover from you know small expectations and at that point uh, i will own a bunch of houses generating currency for me that continually improves in value you see how that's the situation you want to be in. Yeah, I, I, I do. I guess um, if you kinda... can do the same with crypto, then I would say do the same with crypto. It's just a fact that the crypto space right now is awash with charlatans and frauds, and it needs a good purge. And during that purge, everything's going to go down. Statistically speaking, out of the 10,000 cryptocurrencies that CoinMarketCap lists, four or five must have value, like real-world intrinsic value. We haven't figured it out yet because there's just so many of them, but statistically speaking, they must already exist. So we're going to figure that out when the entire market ca uh, collapses and hyper-capitalism basically does what it does best. Everything gets destroyed until the valuable is left. And after everything else has been destroyed, and it's looking like the crypto that are left are actually going to live, well, that's a good moment to invest. Because then you're investing in value, in something that has proven itself to have fundamental value. But Bitcoin hasn't actually proven itself. People say that's been around for 10 years, but uh, if you look at price charts, the price has been going up for basically 10 years. There's been three large corrections now. Uh, one was the Mount Gox implosion, which was the first one. That was the first spike to like a thousand bucks. If people remember that, like Bitcoin price went to like 1400 people said it's insane. And then it went back down to a hundred. Uh, then, uh, there was the 2018 peak, uh, which basically imploded due to Tether running out of fuel for the first time. Then there was the COVID crash which is basically Tether out of, running out of fuel for the second time, but because by now I'm almost dead sure that was Tether uh, getting um, dollar redemptions on the back end en masse because of the liquidity crisis, as it was in 2020, in March. And they basically had to find the dollars because they ran out of buffer. 
only way to find dollars in crypto is uh, sell whatever crypto you have on the balance sheet into the market. And so the price went down. I thought that might have killed crypto, but uh, apparently it wasn't enough to actually destroy Tether and they just went exponential from there. Crashes matter. But okay. during all that time, even though Bitcoin did go down from um, 19,000 uh, 19, to 3,000, if you look at the Tether market cap, it actually started increasing again around that time. So the current pump, if you will, is just a continuation of the 2018 pump or the 2017 pump. Nothing's changed. It's the exact same scam doing the exact same thing in fucking the exact same way too. The only difference this time is that the scam has grown. It's now a conspiracy and it involves all the stablecoin. That is Coinbase's USDC, uh, Bitfinex's Tender, POB's um, HUSD, and of course Binance's BUSD. I'm pretty sure that Kraken's in on it, FTX is in on it as well. No, I, I couldn't agree more. There's it's It's so large and it's so systemic that a lot of actors are essentially remaining quiet or complicit in the perpetration of, of essentially a, a global criminal amount of fraud. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, I guess I just want to ask kind of a, uh, one last kind of simple question is just, you said you, you, you find a reputable private silver and gold mint, and then you have it in a vault by a third party. I'm just curious about how you got to those two conclusions. Uh, well, it's not my entire, uh, security solution, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll run you through the entire process. So, um, I've led a very rough life, at least, uh, psychologically speaking. So I'm not the most trustworthy of person. Um, I want to do everything by myself and I want to make sure that even if I fail, because I've planned for perfection before and that has never worked. So, I plan for failure. If some one part fails, then the other parts must survive. So, uh, for maximum security, what I actually have... Uh, first off, you should never tell anyone what you have. That's the secrecy is your first defense. It's not, your only, it's not a good defense, but it's your first defense. I'm breaking that defense because uh, I have faith in my solution, as well as if I don't say anything, nobody's going to know. Uh, and people will benefit from the information. But, again, first rule, don't tell anyone you got a bunch of silver in your house. That's not a smart thing to do. Second right. is I've got a tiered solution. So when researching private uh, little safes, so I've got a safe as well, um, I found out how they were rated. Now, uh, a rating for a safe is kind of weird to think about. Like, how, how, how are you going to test the thing? Uh, how difficult it is to break open or drill open? Uh, there's a couple of things. And drop safety, like, they also test the thing by just dropping it off the building to see if it opens. Uh, there's quite a bit of technology goes into that uh, these days. However, the rating they have is rated in cash. So uh, my, my safe is rated for... 5,000 euros in cash or 5,000 uh, euros worth of jewelry. Now, this rating 
basically is expressed as as long as there's less than 5,000 euros in this vault, the thieves are not going to steal it. Right. The reason for that is what I said earlier. It's far easier for thieves to walk into your building or walk to your house, grab your TV and walk out. Thieves don't want to spend much time into, in your house because that increases the, time, uh, the chances that they get caught or somebody sees them. And that's just an, uh, a terrible night to have as a thief. So if you've got a vault, or if you've got a safe, I should say, and it's bolted to the floor, it's got a thick door, uh, it has either a key or a pin code, and the thief does not know where uh, one of those things is. Basically, it's going to take him a lot of effort and skill to break open that little safe. Because, uh, sure, you can put a drill in there, but... Um, there's anti-drilling plates. You can pry it. It's bolted to the floor and the wall. So good luck getting that out with a crowbar. But even if you can, that's going to be one hell of a noisy situation. And someone's going to notice that. Uh, and even then, you got the safe, but you haven't got what's inside. So what do you do? Well, you can drop it off a building and still won't crack. So it's a lot of effort for something that is so small. Because the safe has dimensions, of course. That there can't be a lot of stuff in there. Cash still takes up space, so there's not going to be a hundred thousand worth of cash in a small little vault. There's going to be like petty cash. So that is how I've structured it. I've got my first layer of defense. No one knows. Well, that's broken, but who cares? The second layer is my own little personal safe, which is bolted to the floor and bolted to the wall. It has inside. Only a little bit of cash. So it has emergency cash. Uh, should the ATMs not work, it can at least buy food. It has one tube of silver. It's about 700 bucks or something. 800, 900 euros. I don't know, price has gone up. But uh, it's far below the recommended amount. Um, it's got, uh, I think, a water filter. Just in case the water ever runs out. Uh, it's like two or three things more in there, but not of any particular value. I think that everything uh, together is like 2,000 bucks, maybe. And that's like half, not even half the rating. Again, my TV that's in my living room was like 1,500 when I bought it. You can still sell it for like 500. So you can either spend uh, well over an hour making a lot of noise trying to pry that uh, safe from the floor and that doesn't guarantee you anything. Or you can just walk in, grab the TV, walk out. And that right. is how these things are rated. Now, obviously, I've got more silver than that little bit that I keep in my house. So for that, I go to another higher level of security, which is off-site storage. There's a local company which, again, guarantees me that in a legal and economic sense, anything that's in that vault is mine. They don't even know it, what's inside. I had to answer a few basic questions for the insurer when uh, I uh, got the deposit box, as in, what are you planning to store in there? Uh, so just cash, gold, jewelry, the usual. They were, all right, fine, that's enough. But now, since I've gone back and forth between the vault a few times, it's a black box. They don't actually know what's in those vaults, and they can't access the vault. They're not allowed to access the vault. Uh, the only point in which they are going to actually open the vault 
uh, without my consent is if I've been missing for many, many years and they've done every attempt to find me. So um, it's quite safe. And um, like I said, most of the uh, nervousness of putting my money there in the vault was just being not used to it. Really, really just being silly. Just being silly to myself. Like, what if they steal it? Dude, the, the door in front of that vault weighs more than a car. <laughs> it's, there's there's camera, uh, cameras everywhere, dedicated security staff 24-7. The wall is bigger than me. I mean, thicker than uh, my height. I think it's it's I'm not going to get in there without making any sort of disturbance. And if you make any sort of disturbance, people are going to look, they're going to call the police and you're going to get in trouble. It's when, when you start thinking about what it would actually take for someone to steal your stuff in a properly secured vault with a proper company. Don't cheapskate on your fucking security. Um then you actually have nothing to worry about at all. Even if your money is located somewhere in reality and it is anonymous, so if you can't hold it, it's not yours. Similarly, because they don't know what's in the vault, I need to prove what's in those vaults. So if they do get robbed, the insurer is going to ask me what's in the vault, and if I can't show them a picture of what's in the vault, I don't get it back. It's basically lost. I, it's just my fault. I should have made a picture. So uh, I do have pictures in my uh, data backups of what's in the vault. But you still, that, that doesn't do you any good if you can't get into the vault. And to get into the vault, you have to show your ID. And I actually get an email uh, if somebody visits my vault. So I get an email if uh, I visit my own vault. And I'm the only one with rights to enter that vault because it's in their system. So if you want to try and legally get into that vault, I will still get an email. But you first have to hack their systems to put your name into the database. So there's so much work involved with actually stealing someone's shit once you uh, have it secured off site. And you know what this whole shindig is costing me? How much? Uh, 227 euros a year. Okay, that's quite reasonable. Yeah, yeah, you know what's uh, not reasonable? That uh, before I pulled that money out of my banking account, uh, it was 10,000. So I had 10,000. Well, I actually had 11,000 in the savings account. You know how much interest I got over that in Not 2019? Much. Not much, I'm guessing. Three euros. Okay. On an amount of 11,000 euros plus of life savings, and I don't have any debt because I simply lived frugally. Even though my income is 75% of minimum wage, I am not a rich person. Right. I still only got 3% uh, or, or no, 3 euros worth of interest. It was 0.01%. Inflation, even with the bullshit depressed rate of 2019, was still higher than 0.01%. It was like 1.3% or something. Well, fine. Fine, you know what? Let's use their bullshit measure and let's just say that inflation was 1% in 2019. Well, 1% of uh, 11,000 is 
eleven hundred. No, 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 no. Uh, a hundred ten bucks. Right. So, I'm effectively paying a hundred and ten bucks to put my money into a bank, which is then going to lever it up and create systemic risk. Or I could put it in the vault and, at the very least, not lose any money, because silver and gold are elemental. And even though the price fluctuates because of the fucking gold uh, paper scam, or the paper gold scam, and the paper silver scam, the physical still exists within reality, and there is a limit to how far you can push this. Like, leverage is already up to, like, 200 times or 500 times. You can't go 5,000. At some point, people will smell trouble. That's what's been happening over the past year, and that's why Comex has been having so much trouble. Gotcha. So, uh effectively while i may be paying 227 bucks uh 27 euros now per year for storage i was already paying 110 euros a year for storage in the bank and it's not safer there meanwhile you know what my average buying cost was in december 2019 what 18 euros 33 you know what silver is now per coin uh no 28 euros. Okay. That's pretty uh, extreme, actually. Yeah, I actually... Ju uh, it isn't that extreme compared to everything else, but that's why everyone else's attention has been focused there. But um, I'm going to blow your mind again. Look up one company. General Motors. Go look at the share price performance of General Motors since the COVID crash. Okay. You got it? It's gone up 50%. That's quite a rise, isn't it? That's one everyone missed. It, it's not just that it's gone up a lot. It's that uh, at the start of February in 2020, it was 35 bucks a share. In the COVID crash, it went down to 17 bucks a share, so it halved. Right now, it's 62. So it's close to being double the pre-COVID pre high. So even if COVID hadn't happened, we wouldn't have expected it to go this high. No. And you know what's even more insane? Uh, what? You know what the Ford PE ratio is on that high share price? No. 11. The, their PE ratio today at a market cap of $91 billion is 10. The historical PE ratios, for those who don't know, uh, 7 is undervalued, 15 is fair value, and 30 is bubble territory. Uh, basically, you know, the, quite a few caveats there, but simplified. So the fact that it's 10, I can tell you for a fact, especially since the enterprise value is half uh, or uh, is double of market cap. Sure, they've got a lot of debt, and that's a problem, but uh, the government's also going to build them out. Um, even though their share price is almost double pre-COVID high, they're undervalued. They're severely undervalued. Right, because they're making a lot of earnings given the price of the stock. Yeah, well, they're, they're making a lot of earnings because there's a shortage in semiconductors, so, so whatever cars they can build are going through the roof in price. 
but that's also part of inflation. So it's I'm just trying to say that even at such a vastly increased market cap, even even though the market cap is practically double of what it was pre-COVID, it's still undervalued. So the share price should go up further. Technically speaking. Well, again, uh, don't, don't take this as investment advice. It might very well go somewhere else because it still has a lot of debt. And who knows what hell will happen there. But it is to say that stuff you would say on a price action chart is overpriced. You look at the fundamentals, it actually isn't. It actually is still a cheap deal. So if GM is a cheap deal at twice the market cap pre-COVID, what does that say about everything else? You know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's also the point of hyperinflation and inflation. The value of the currency itself goes down, so everything that's denominated in that currency goes up. So GM has actually uh, technically not gone up in value. It's just that uh, the infl inflation has hit the car sector first, and they're the beneficiaries of that. So just wrapping it up here because it's, uh, you know, you've been very nice with your time and um, uh, it's getting late for you and I definitely have to um, get going here as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in my last question, I just want to ask uh, to the audience, like the average audience member that might be considering, you know, putting their life savings or a serious amount of savings into crypto, you know, buying Ethereum, Bitcoin, Binance coin, Cardano, uh, Hex, Polkadot, mm -hmm. Uniswap, Litecoin. Uh, Chainlink, all of these tokens, they're they're putting them in all of these different tokens on various exchanges. Um, what can you say to that person who's considering uh, doing this big jump to avoid inflation? Well, first of all, the ones who are still capable of being saved, don't fucking do it. There's better assets out there that will last longer. Sure, it's going up now, but you won't make money unless it stays up. If uh, crypto does well for the first uh, two-thirds of hyperinflation and then drops in value in the last third, you're still fucked. So look towards the future. But if you have to invest in crypto, because I know there's people out there who can't be talked out of this anymore, just play it smart. What people are trying to do now, and that's the reason they keep losing all their money, is they're trying to get rich quick. And getting rich, for most of you listening out there, is never going to be an option. You don't have what it takes. And again, this is most of you out there. That doesn't mean you can't live a good life. But I'm just trying to make you understand that you should try to go for being well off. Not try to become rich. Try to become well off. Don't chase the ultimate gains. Just chase gains. Just if you gain 20% returns a year, which is already insane, but if you can keep that up for 20 years, you will be rich too. And keeping 20% gains up for, uh, well, that's all already pretty hard, but you can do the same thing with 10% gains in like 30 years. So pick assets that you know will do well and still diversify. I know silver will do well, and I have put 
my life savings into physical silver, but not all of it. I've also bought gold. Now, gold and silver are linked, but this is what I mean by diversifying. I simply saw the reason in which gold is going to go up, and I saw the reason in which silver is going to go up, and it's the same. It's, uh, it's hyperinflation, and in the case of silver, there's a supply shortage. Also happens in the case of gold, but there's more, uh, more supply of gold out there than silver. So, uh, in case of silver, we can su uh, expect a supply crunch on top of the increased demand from um, deprecating the currency. So, I invested in gold and silver because I knew the sector would do well because of inflation. But I concentrated my wealth more on silver and I went uh, uh, six parts silver, three parts gold because... I know both will do well for the same reason, but silver will do better because of an additional reason, which is the supply shortage and undermining of silver over the ages. But I still have 1k left, and I put that 1k into the market. And I didn't put it into gold and silver miners, uh, even though that would have been a good bet. Uh, and I, I, I don't discourage anyone from doing it and say you can put money into gold and silver mines if i had more money i would but because i already bought a lot of physical silver and physical gold you can say that i am in the gold market i am in the silver market and because i want to diversify because i am not certain when things will happen i am certain they will happen but i'm not certain when i have picked other assets as well uh, in rare earths and uranium as diverse uh, to diversify my portfolio because I knew that both of those will do well as well. I knew that the same reason for which gold and silver are going to go up uh, is going to cushion my losses in case I'm wrong in uh, uranium and rare earths simply because they are commodities. We'll pull them out of the ground. There is a demand for them. As such, they will never go to zero. Even when there's people uh, selling cars for like three or four ounces of silver, I will never have to sell my uh, uranium or rare earth companies for three or four ounces of silver because the commodities itself hold value for the same reason. But I also know that there is a giant undersupply in uranium. Uh, I've simply researched this. Uh, I've listened to some people talk about it. They make convincing arguments. And I know that there is a higher demand, a forced demand for uranium. Because if you want to keep the lights on, you need the fuel. And there's a higher demand for this than there is supply. Ergo, prices at some point in the future for uranium must go up. So I invest a lot in uranium companies. Meanwhile, uh, because this was in the middle of 2020... And it was very clear that uh, both the United States and China messed up their response to the pandemic. Um, well, I've known about rare earths as a commodity for a while. Uh, I also saw it get used as a, ex um, capped as exports in a export dispute with Japan. Uh, I know that uh, rare earth prices have gone ballistic because of this before. Now, I wondered, could I find a reason for China to use the export caps again? Well, yes, well, the America, America's antagonizing them. And China needs an external enemy to have their population not focus on uh, the communist regime and therefore uh, performance. 
in the past few uh, months, year and a half. So, given that it's only a, it was only a matter of time before something would happen to the rare earth chain, and indeed, in September last year, uh, approximately a month after I invested in rare earths, Trump put out an uh, executive order for the rare earth chain to diversify, and ever since then. Uh, my rare earth companies gone through the roof. They corrected down in uh, J January because everything spiked up in January. Don't know what that happened there. They've corrected down since. And the other day, I put out a uh, actually a buying recommendation for one of my uh, rare earth juniors, uh, Arafura, simply because it's gone up double from where I bought it. It went up more than uh, triple. But also correct back down to double. Uh, and it's now stayed at double that price for quite a while. I haven't seen uh, any news come out of the rare earth market for a while. I know that neodymium prices have dropped because the Chinese uh, are trying to stop commodity prices going up. Because America's exporting its uh, inflation to China and China can't do shit about it right now. So um, I expect them to resume. Because uh, Chinese factory orders also blew out uh, and prices blew out in the report today. So uh, nothing's changed. China will hyperinflate as well. They've got a massive debt bubble, so they need to print money. They just, America's just printing faster and China can't keep up. So eventually, something's going to come to a head. And if it's not the rare earth market immediately, eventually it will be. Because that's how China can hurt America to make America stop printing so much dollars. Or at least uh, can accurately price those dollars. Because that's the real problem. Uh, commodities are undervalued compared to the dollar. So China's actually selling itself short. And that's causing its financial issues, such as the yuan appreciating. Because they can't print yuan fast enough compared to how fast dollars are being printed. It's really the wild west of economics, if you ask me. But... That's the kind of things that I look at when protecting myself from inflation and diversifying my portfolio. I think diversification is stupid, but divestment is smart. Investing in different things that will go up for the same reason is smart because you can't be sure of the timing. But saying that you should allocate 15% to crypto because you already allocated 15% to silver and now you have to buy something you don't know anything about that is dumb. That is dumb bullshit. You shouldn't do that. If you know something's going to go up, for sure, based on fundamentals, and that is why I don't advocate crypto, because it's not based on fundamentals. It's based on stablecoin printing out of thin air, pumping bullshit and charlatans of fraud. But once you have a fundamental case for something to go up, eventually, eventually it will. Even in and hyperinflation. And on that note, I'm going to thank you, Dezo, for coming on and sharing your opinions here. Uh, I really appreciate your time. My pleasure.